Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So what concerns me most about the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis is recognizing that we have centuries of human-made systems that are really at the core of these crises and how we continue to ignore them. And those people who have privilege and power don't recognize that they have the privilege and the power to create change. Hello, and welcome to We the Children, the podcast where kids talk climate change. I'm your resident kid, Zachary, from Los Angeles, California. I may only be 11 years old, but I want to spark big change for my generation's future. And I'm Claire, Zach's teacher. I pop in from time to time to learn from Zach and brainstorm climate solutions. We have an exciting show for you today. Sean Sweeney is here and we'll test his climate IQ this week's trivia game and leave you with an exciting action step of the week. And with that, I'm gone with the wind. Over to you, Aldo. Batten down the hatches, everyone. Tornado season is upon us. You may have seen tornadoes in TV or movies. Wizard of Oz, anyone? But did you know that these wild windstorms are actually being impacted by, you guessed it, climate change? Researchers are currently trying to understand exactly how our warming planet contributes to tornado formation, but common sense tells us that the two are certainly correlated. Here's why. First, let's understand how tornadoes form. Take your average thundercloud, for example. Inside that cloud, the humid, hot air rises while the cooler air falls to the bottom. In extreme cases, this causes air currents that spin inside the cloud. Depending on wind conditions, these air currents can pick up a great deal of speed and become vertical and funnel-shaped, dropping right out of the clouds and becoming a tornado. Warm yet stormy, Wet weather is a key ingredient in the tornado's formation. If you're listening to this podcast, 
You likely probably already know that the planet is warming at alarming rates, causing an increase in extreme storms and other weather events. We are seeing record high temperatures in regions of the country most prone to tornadoes, often referred to as Tornado Alley, extending through states like Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, South Dakota, Iowa, and more. Scientists believe that warming weather combined with more intense and frequent storms could be causing an increase in tornadoes and be expanding the geographic range where tornadoes take place. Even my hometown of Los Angeles, California, where tornadoes are very rare, recently saw a tornado touchdown. The first since 1983. How twisted is that? Alright folks, that's enough tornado talk for today. I'm feeling pretty winded. Back to you, Zach. Thanks, Waldo. That concludes your wacky weather forecast for today. I guess we're really not in Kansas anymore. Toto? I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming and bring you live to our interview with Sean Sweeney. Today's guest is Sean Sweeney, Associate Vice President of Communications and Policy at the Jane Goodall Institute. Sean's career has spanned many years of combining his passion for the environment, research, and community relations. Welcome, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. We're so grateful you're here. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Of course. So you've had a very interesting career so far. I'm always curious what leads you to a job in conservation. And can you tell us a little bit about your start? I have had the great honor of working in conservation for about 16 years, but my work in conservation actually started before that when I was in undergrad and studying animal behavior and conservation psychology in school. And I actually became a member of Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots after meeting Jane, Dr. Jane, in school when I was at the College of Worcester. On the off chance you don't know who Jane Goodall is, listen up. Dr. Jane Goodall is a world-renowned ethiologist and conservationist. She is considered the leading expert on chimpanzees after spending 60 years studying the species. She is a pioneer in the world of scientific research and broke barriers for many female scientists as well. So... My professional career in conservation goes back to about 2006, but I'm so glad and grateful to have had the opportunity to start even before then in school with Roots and Shoots and with my studies. So, and I got into it actually from a very young age. I was probably about your age when I became aware of how great apes were being treated in the wild and how they were under threat of extinction, actually became aware of mountain gorillas first. And they're the ones that are probably the most close, the most threatened with extinction of all the great apes. And that got me really interested and passionate in not only helping them, but also in studying them. And that took me to the College of Worcester, like I mentioned, where I went to study animal behavior actually went there because they had a colony of black-capped capuchin monkeys that uh, they were doing behavioral research on there. And I had the great honor of being able to take care of those monkeys and do some really fun research with them for the four years I was in undergrad. And about halfway through, I became aware of what's known as conservation psychology. And I just loved how that really fed into my passion and 
looking at how we can use the science of psychology to help people become conservation minded. So I sort of switched my focus from animal behavior to studying conservation. And that brought me to Roots and Shoots and my career with Dr. Jane and the Jane Goodall Institute. What encouraged you to be a climate champion? So, you know, what's interesting about that question for me is I guess I do consider myself a climate champion, but from the time I was your age, I've been a champion for all wildlife and for nature. And we have to be aware of how our planet is changing and the many crises that we're facing right now as it relates to protecting wildlife and protecting nature. And the climate crisis is certainly one of those issues that we're facing. We have the sixth great extinction that we're going through right now and all of the loss of biodiversity. And those two things are pretty connected with each other. So I think of myself more as a nature and wildlife champion than I do necessarily a climate champion. But I recognize that the climate crisis is real and it's something that we need to pay attention to as we seek to protect nature and Earth's biodiversity. And like I said, what made me that way was learning about the threats to mountain gorillas when I was 10 years old. And that sort of throwing me deeply into learning about and understanding what was causing problems for them. And then zooming out, what happens when you look at a lot of big mammals like the great apes is that you see how they're one species in these incredibly rich biodiverse habitats. And as soon as you zoom out from that one big mammal, you end up seeing all these other species. And we see that what threatens those big mammals often are even bigger threats for other species that they share their habitat with. And when you start zooming out and looking at the whole world, you start seeing that a lot of those threats and a lot of those problems exist elsewhere around the world. And suddenly you start seeing that if we don't take action, we could be losing species everywhere. Biodiversity is a vital part of a healthy climate and environment. It is the variety of animals, plants, and microorganisms that come together to create the unique ecosystems of our planet. How do you explain climate change and extinction to people who may not understand? So in my role at the Jane Goodall Institute, I am a storyteller and I have had the great honor of learning from the person who I think is probably the greatest storyteller of all time. And that's saying a lot because I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings and J.R.R. Tolkien. But Dr. Jane Goodall, the founder of the Jane Goodall Institute and who I'm fortunate to call my leader, is an amazing storyteller. And I always try to empathize with the person that I'm thinking about and put myself in their shoes and approach them from where they're at and try to do it with a story. Tell them about something that it's clear that they'll care about and to frame it in, in a way that will be engaging for them and will help them feel empowered to want to take action themselves. And that's also one of those ways that we can help to bridge the gap between the science of the climate crisis and extinction with people's understanding of the natural world and where they might be coming from themselves. 
So that's usually how I approach it. And that's a big part of my work working in communications and partnerships for the Jane Goodall Institute. We have to think about all of our different audiences and how we get to know them and how we get to understand where they're coming from, try to really appreciate their perspective and to frame how we communicate through that lens with a lot of empathy and with stories. Did you participate in Roost and Shoots when you were in school? I did. So when I was at the College of Worcester and I was earning my bachelor's degree, we had the great fortune of a visit by Dr. Jane to our school one fall. It was in fall 2004. There was a Roots and Shoots group at Worcester High School, which was just down the street from where my college was. And Dr. Jane wanted to visit that Roots and Shoots group. And she was there to also give a lecture for the university campus. And because many people knew my role in studying animal behavior on campus, they asked me and they invited me to volunteer as a sort of student ambassador for Dr. Jane when she was visiting campus. And from there, I became so inspired that by Dr. Jane's visit and her talking about the power of Roots and Shoots that I started a group on campus at the College of Worcester. And for my junior and my senior year, we did Roots and Shoots projects all over campus. What I'm most proud of is how that was almost 20 years ago, which is crazy to me. And, you know, we were just beginning to really talk about the climate crisis and the extinction of species. Wasn't in the news nearly as much or in policy conversations nearly as much. And on my tiny little university or college campus, we were, you know, at the forefront kind of of, of leading some of the conversations about how the campus could be more sustainable and what we could do as a school to fight against the climate crisis and at least, you know, avoid contributing to it. So it was so interesting to see the beginning of things then. I know the movement for the environment predates even my university years by many decades. It feels like we were still very early in the movement, even back when I was in school and uh, when we started Roots and Shoots. Can you tell us more about how Roots and Shoots works and the Roots and Shoots base camps? Sure. Yeah. So, Zach, I hope you'll have a chance to talk more with my colleagues from the Roots and Shoots team. I can tell you Roots and Shoots from my perspective, but they'll certainly have a lot more information for you. Roots and Shoots started because Dr. Jane witnessed and heard from many young people like you who said that they felt like their future had been stolen. And there were all these problems in the world that they saw for people, for animals, and for the environment, and that there was nothing they could do about it. So Dr. Jane said, if we're going to have a generation of young people who grow up and that's their attitude, then we may as well all just give up. So she started Roots and Shoots because she knew that young people could and have changed their communities 
And she wanted to show them. She wanted to get young people together and show them how they can make a difference in their communities. And coming from her background in studying animals, she really wanted to draw young people's attention to the interconnectedness and the intersectionality of a lot of the issues that we are facing in the world for people, for animals, and for the environment. So that's kind of how Roots and Shoots got started. And where it started is, you know, where we're still at today in many ways in working with young people to help them identify a problem or problems in their community and develop projects, one that focuses on animals, one that focuses on people, and one that focuses on the environment, and having them develop projects that address those problems that they see in their communities. And that's really what Roots and Shoots is in a nutshell. We know that we want young people to feel empowered and to know that they're actually making a difference. And so here in the United States, we have an approach that we call the four-step formula. And that's just something that we've developed to help give a little bit of a blueprint for how to approach developing those projects and how to really make sure that you have a project that's well-planned, that has a clear focus on people, on animals, or on the environment, and really is set up and designed in a way that you'll be able to see your impact. And there's actually a lot of psychology that shows how being able to see that impact is something that will help you feel more compelled to continue doing what you're doing and inspired and knowing that you really can do what Jane always wanted to do in making a difference in your community. So we have the four-step formula. And, you know, for us, we want the experience of Roots and Shoots to help create young people who are compassionate citizens, who are people who are engaged in their community now as young leaders and as young citizens and well into their into their careers as well. And now that Roots and Shoots is over 30 years old, we actually see many people who have gone from Roots and Shoots and into their careers. I'm very proud to be one of those people, actually. But there's many people around the world who we know 30 years later experienced Roots and Shoots early on and are now doing great things in their careers after having experienced leading those projects in their communities. The Roots and Shoots base camps are something that is a little bit old for us here in the United States. It's actually an approach that Dr. Jane used when she was first forming Roots and Shoots in the U.S. And it's pretty simple. You know, Roots and Shoots is very grassroots. And so the idea with base camps is that we will work in certain communities like here in Los Angeles, where I know you are and where I am right at this moment, work in communities like Los Angeles to gather a group of people who are committed to and interested in helping us grow Roots and Shoots locally and forming what we call a base camp, which is really just a, a network of local volunteers and Roots and Shoots experts and young people like you who are Roots and Shoots experts 
to get together and multiply your impact and connect with each other and share your best practices and share your connections and ultimately just feel the power and the wonder of the Roots and Shoots family up close in your own backyard. And our goal is to start in in places like Los Angeles and Atlanta and other places like Tampa and elsewhere around the country and, and start small with grassroots gatherings and networking in those cities and then eventually head everywhere all over the U.S. with that approach using base camps. So they're pretty exciting. And I know they're a part of how I learned about Roots and Shoots early in my participation. So I'm really glad to see us using this approach again with base camps. There are several ways to get involved with Roots and Shoots. You can join an existing group that may have similar interests to you. For example, a composting group or a gardening group. Or you can start your own group. The four steps are get engaged, observe, to see what's needed, take action, and celebrate. You may observe that too much food waste is going into the trash bins at your school. That may encourage you to act and start a composting group. You may ask your school to put in compost bins, then help other students use them. Yay! Celebrate! You can be anywhere to start a group. More info in this episode's story notes. I know maybe you have a lot of listeners who are in the Los Angeles area. So if they are listening and would like to be a part of the base camp here in Los Angeles, they can check out rootsandshoots.org and we'll have more information there for them so they can learn how to connect with the local base camp here in L.A. What would you suggest to a group of kids looking for a project? How should they start? So... If you're looking for a project with Roots and Shoots, you have both the problem that you want to solve and the solution. When I was talking about Roots and Shoots, I was sharing about how Jane, how Dr. Jane was really passionate about having young people take a critical look at their communities and identify problems that exist for people for animals especially, and for the environment. And a project really starts with identifying one of those. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Problems. And we want to make sure that you're looking at problems that you see as young people in the community. We have, as a part of that four step formula, one tool or one approach that I mentioned called community mapping, where it's actually a 
approach that helps you explore your community. Community mapping is a process through which people, citizens, or researchers explore different communities with a specific problem in mind that they want to solve. And so the four-step formula uses community mapping to help identify a problem and also help look at how problems overlap. We see many times that intersection of different issues and love to see when projects that young people come up with address multiple issues. And so with community mapping, you'll get to know your community better. Inevitably, you'll identify some of those problems. And then the next step in the four-step formula helps you design a project that addresses those, those issues or those problems that you see in your community. So you'll see pretty quickly once you do community mapping where there are ways that you can help and those ways that you can help pretty quickly become your projects. Very cool. How can my generation help slow down climate change? Do you have suggestions on where we should be focusing? You know, I think that it's a tall order to look at your generation to fix things. We know that there are companies around the world who all they have to do is change some slight business practices and we could very easily slow down climate change and our increasing temperatures. So I think it's a lot to put on your generation to have to solve the climate crisis all on your own. That being said, this is a planet that you are inheriting and there's often a quote from the second Lord of the Rings movie. I mentioned I was a Lord of the Rings fan earlier, where Samwise and Frodo are talking and Samwise tells Frodo that there's still a lot left that's good, that's worth fighting for in the world. And I think that my hope and what I love seeing with young people like you is that you see the good that there is in the world and that you're motivated to do projects that help protect and fight for those things that are good and keep those things that are good. And if you do that and your friends do that and your school does that and your neighborhood does that and your state and country and other countries around the world, that really adds up. And we are putting on your shoulders instead good stewardship of our planet instead of fixing problems that other generations created for you. That reminds me of a quote that I heard from Dr. Jane Goodall. There is a powerful force unleashed when young people resolve to make a change. What accomplishments are you most proud of? That's such a good question. And I have to say... One of my things that I have a lot of pride in is the work that we've done on storytelling at the Jane Goodall Institute. I mentioned that for me, Dr. Jane Goodall is the world's greatest storyteller of all time. And what we wanted to do was look at how we could learn from Dr. Jane's approach to storytelling and distill that down into an approach that others of us could make use of and could help us extend Jane's storytelling impact 
to the Jane Goodall Institute, to members of Roots and Shoots, and to other people around the world who are interested in how we can use stories to create change. So we've worked over the last couple of years to really study and to understand Dr. Jane's approach to storytelling. We've talked to a lot of people across the Jane Goodall Institute to look at the best of the best stories that we've had that that Dr. Jane has told that we've experienced and distilled that down into a whole framework and a training for our colleagues here at the Jane Goodall Institute and one that we're sharing with other people now as well. And I'm most proud of this because I feel like it's a great way of preserving Dr. Jane's legacy to recognize how important stories are and have been to her approach to change making and how we're leveraging that to extend her change and continue to make an impact today and, you know, hopefully forever. I'm also really proud of it because we've focused in this work on storytelling on both what we consider exploitative storytelling and extractive storytelling and how we can avoid doing either of those things when it comes to our storytelling. What I mean by exploitative or extractive is when we're not really thinking about who our storyteller is and we're not honoring them and their experience in a lot of different ways. So I'll give you an example. We, many years ago, had a great opportunity to film with a group of women in Tanzania. And we were learning all about their work with fuel-efficient stoves. And there was one female leader in her community named Anna. And Anna had amazed me with her work with these fuel-efficient stoves. Over the course of several years, after having been trained in how to create and install these stoves, Anna had installed 150 stoves. She installed her own, and then she helped 150 families install homes or install stoves in their homes. And that's a story that always comes to mind for me when I share that story, because as much as possible, I make sure that Anna is named and it's her power and her impact that we want to elevate. And I could very easily say as somebody from the Jane Goodall Institute that we helped create those fuel efficient stoves and we installed this new technology and we helped these families. But ultimately it was Anna and Anna's power and Anna's impact in her local community. And we really want to recognize her and her impact in her community. And we do that by recognizing who she is as a leader in her community, recognizing her passion and, and her inputs and her leadership and make sure that she's recognized and, and credited for all that hard work. So that's one of the things that we've really tried to work on in this approach to storytelling at the Jane Goodall Institute that I'm really proud of that, you know, we can make sure that our partners and friends like Anna are given due credit and honored for their impact. So that's a big thing that I'm proud of. I have a lot of pride in our Roots and Shoots members all over the U.S. and around the world and learning about their projects every single day. 
when I hear about what they're doing, when I heard about your podcast and know that it's part of your Roots and Shoots group, I feel a lot of pride. So that's another big thing that I'm proud of. Wow. Great work, Anna. So cool. Thank you for sharing Anna's story with us. You've traveled so much. Is there a climate situation you've witnessed that you want to share with us? One that I know of that I like to draw people's attention to is cave dwelling behavior by chimpanzees in Western Africa. Chimps don't normally go into caves or use caves on a regular basis. And there's really fascinating research that's going on right now in Senegal and Mali on how chimps are starting to have to use caves to escape the heat during the day and how at night they actually go and feed, which is also not a really normal behavior for chimps. So that's one that I'm aware of that I think a lot of people don't talk about or hear about often that I think is a really stark example of how species like chimpanzees are experiencing the climate crisis. And like I said before, species like chimpanzees, they're a big species in their habitat and they represent a lot of other species. We know that chimps are pretty adaptable and if they're having to adapt in such a big way to the rising temperatures in that area, it means that probably a lot of other species are experiencing similar need to adapt as well. So that's the example of climate that I would talk about and draw people's attention to. It's almost as if they're becoming nocturnal. In a way, yeah. From what I understand, and I have colleagues who are primatologists who can explain it much better than I can, but from what I understand, it's not feeding all night, but feeding after the sun goes down, when it is cooler, and then eventually going to bed like they normally would at night, but also during the day, not having a safe, cold, cool place to to stay during the day when they're awake. So they find themselves using caves periodically. What concerns you the most about climate change? So what concerns me most about the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis is recognizing that we have centuries of human-made systems that are really at the core of these crises and how we continue to ignore them. And those people who have privilege and power don't recognize that they have the privilege and the power to create change. And we continue maintaining those systems. When I talk about systems, I'm really talking about systems that oppress people, that oppress animals and create conditions for animals that are unhealthy for them and can be at times cruel for them. We have a way that we value nature or don't value nature. We have systems that force us to value productivity and making money and meeting our next quarterly budget goal and not taking the environment and not taking nature into account when we're doing that. Those are all systems that we continue to maintain 
And they're changing them is really the key to fighting the climate crisis and saving species from extinction. So I think those of us who do have privilege, have the privilege and, and where we have power, like I mentioned earlier, and how there's, in the grand scheme of things, not very many corporations who could just change a few policies and a few practices. And, you know, we'd be in much different place as it relates to climate change. That's probably the biggest thing that concerns me. But at the same time, I will say that many people who do have power and privilege are starting to recognize it and starting to see how they can use their platforms and they can use their place at the table to invite other people to the table and how more and more voices are being heard and recognized and valued. And so while it gives me concern, we're not seeing no change on it. So that does give me hope. Speaking of hope, what gives you the most hope for a better future? I think partially the change that we are seeing and people being aware of these systems that I mentioned and how we can't maintain old systems and expect new, better outcomes. So that's one of those things that gives me hope. Hearing stories of people who are doing incredible things to bring species back from the brink of extinction, who are coming up with really simple technology to change our agricultural practices, to change how we get from one place to another, how we have innovated in so many different areas of consumerism, all of those things, simple and the more complex things that people are introducing give me hope. And I think the biggest thing that gives me hope, though, is communities, especially local and indigenous communities, really coming together to recognize the power and the role that they can play and getting support and being engaged and feeling empowered to actually make that change. And that's local and indigenous communities. It's local communities, like the local community that you're a part of, the local community that I'm a part of, seeing space and time for us to think about and consider these problems that we're facing in the world. And while there may not be as much engagement as we want or we hope for, it's growing. And that gives me hope as well. Yes, I agree. That gives me hope too. Thank you. Sean, such a pleasure talking to you. I'm inspired and my better listeners are too. And now it's time to test your climate knowledge with some, you guessed it, climate trivia. You game, Sean? Yep. Let's do this. Number one, Roots and Shoots is now a global movement active in over how many countries around the world? A, 40, B, 60, or C, 23? This is a really good question. And speaking of the things that we're proud of, we know that Roots and Shoots is active in over 60 countries at this point in time. And in its history, in its 30-year history, we know it's reached many, many more countries than that with young people who have done projects beyond those 60 countries. So pretty exciting. Correct. 
Question number two. The 15th chimpanzee to get her freedom living at the Jane Goodall Institute's Chimpuga Chimpanzee Rehabilitation Center in the Republic of Congo was named A. Zach, B. Wunda, or C. Sean. Well, I would be so honored to have a chimpanzee named after me. I have to say it is B. Wunda. And I am so delighted to have met Wunda just a couple weeks ago when I was visiting Chimpunga in Republic of Congo. Question number three. What is compassionate leadership? A, one guided by compassion. B, one guided by educational thought. C, one who will make good decisions for our planet. Or D, all of the above. I am so glad you asked this question because I didn't get to talk about compassionate leadership much earlier. And it is definitely D, all of the above. And that's what we hope all members of Roots and Shoots will embody when they lead their projects. And like I mentioned, go into adulthood and into their careers, carrying compassionate leadership with them. Well, that's it. Thank you for coming on, Sean. Thank you, Zach. Wow, Sean really knows his stuff. All right, folks, let's wrap up this episode with our weekly action stuff. (laughs) All right, Claire, we made it. Uh, Zach, where exactly have you taken me? I wanted to take you on a little field trip today to a local farm close to my hometown of LA. This farm is special because they use regenerative agriculture methods to help protect the land and improve food quality. Uh, regenerative what? Regenerative farming is a practice that helps combat the damage that industrial agriculture systems have inflicted on our planet. Farmers work to promote biodiversity in their farms, restore the health of the soil, and protect water resources. Wow, old McDonald would be proud. Now, is this better than the regular farming as we know it? Oh, yeah. Standard industrial American farming is really harmful to the earth, mainly due to the use of chemicals and toxic pesticides or monocropping. Planting one crop over and over, which destroys the soil. Many large-scale farms also overuse water resources as they don't farm seasonally. Sounds like regenerative farming is the way to go. How can I support it? The best thing about this farm is that they sell meat and produce boxes to local customers. Many other regenerative farms do the same. Buying food from local farmers is one of the best ways you can help the environment, as large-scale grocers often sell mass-produced food that has been shipped from all over the world, causing even more climate trouble. How do I sign up for these boxes you speak of? If you're interested in purchasing ethically sourced meat, check out goodmeatbreakdown.org. This site has a search engine to help you find local farms in your area. Localharvest.org is another great website that can help you find both meat and produce to purchase locally. Thanks, Zach. Now let's check out this farm. Yeah, let's. Although I may have worn the wrong shoes. No, dear. Well, that's our show, folks. As always, I'd love to hear from anyone who wants to share feedback about the podcast. Please feel free to message me through our social media. It's pretty cool. Special thanks to our guest today, Sean Sweeney. I also want to thank my parents, my buddy Waldo, my teacher Claire, as well as the producers and engineers over at Resonate Recording. Best but not least, 
you, the listener, for tuning in to We the Children podcast. Find us on social media at We the Children podcast, and don't hesitate to reach out to us. Remember, if we act together, we, the children, can inspire hope and create change for our climate. Tune in next time for more climate content. I know the planet is warming, but try to stay cool. This is Zachary James, signing off. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.